בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים, חברים יקרים. We're back here with our uh, series of the uh, Jewish intimacy, uh, trying to uh, learn how to sanctify ourselves as a people, as a nation, uh, as a species. Uh, certainly many of these teachings are uh, relevant to uh, both Jews and non-Jews, but needless to say, this is something that a, a person uh, could take upon themselves and uh, really change their life. Uh, tonight's shiur will be for the Refuah Shlema for Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Refraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Avi Mori David Ben Esriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and also for the Atzlacha Rabba for Marsha Bat Julie and all of Am Yisrael, all the righteous Noahides, all the wonderful people that continue to support us uh, by watching our shiurim, by sharing them, getting other people to watch them, encouraging them, and of course, donating their time and resources to help us continue doing everything that we're doing. Uh, Hashem, we announced uh, yesterday that um, we are only about a week away from the launch of the most powerful movie in, uh, in history, in the Torah history, uh, which is the uh, Gehenom movie. Uh, that will be released in, uh, on December 14th at 8 p.m. Uh, please, if you... Uh, uh, want to make sure that you watch it because it's going to be a premiere so it's a uh, uh, something that you can watch like as if you're watching a live lecture uh, make sure you're subscribed to the uh, YouTube channel uh, and uh, or if you're watching it on the app make sure that you're uh, up to date and you get the updates uh, so as soon as it's out you're uh, up there and you're getting it also for any of you uh, that uh, miss out a lot of our updates one of the things that you can do is sign up to our uh, weekly newsletter. We have a weekly newsletter, Baruch Hashem, with thousands and thousands of subscribers. Sign up to the newsletter. We try to make sure to put new things in it each week, uh, aside from the, uh, the news and what's going on, but also uh, different lectures that apparently many of you are not aware are actually happening on some of our other channels. Like There's actually been a series by one of our own dear uh, Rabbi Leib, uh, a series for women, uh, on our Bezot Hashem channel that apparently many women uh, that are watching all of our lectures didn't know that it was happening. So if you subscribe to the newsletter uh, and uh, you know, you'll get an up-to-date report on those, you could subscribe to the newsletter by going to our website and uh, scrolling down and subscribing. Anyone that wants to donate uh, to help us uh, either with the Gano movie or with anything else can go to our website bhtorah.org uh, B is in Bezrat, H is in Harry uh, or obviously Hashem, uh, uh, Torah.org, or go to BeZratHashem.org. Uh, these are the couple of websites. Of course, there are others, but I'll spare you the time. Uh, the um, other update that we have, Baruch Hashem, the, uh, um, you know, the, the channel on uh, YouTube is growing, so we're going to be starting a, uh, a new thing uh, for, 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 uh, to encourage people to continue subscribing, to continue watching everything, to continue commenting and being involved in the shiurim. Bezat Hashem, soon we're going to try to start doing some of these live shiurim on uh, YouTube uh, as, uh, you know, as Facebook is censoring us already or what they call uh, uh, shadow something, uh, shadow banning us already for a few years and it's a, regardless of what we do, it's not helping. So uh, in order to reach more and more people, we're going to try to actually have the uh, you know the uh, live uh, go on our uh, not only on our app uh, but also on YouTube but this will be soon. One of the things that we want is more people to actually subscribe. 
Right now, we're uh, approaching 40,000 subscribers on the main channel. And uh, what we're doing is we're uh, starting a new special where every new 1,000 subscribers, until we get to 50,000 subscribers, that uh, we'll pick one random subscriber and uh, send them a gift. Uh, the, you know, it could be a, a book like a chumash or a pekeavot or a, a USB or a talit or all types of, you know, valuable gifts. We're not going to send you a $3 gift. Send you gifts that are worth, you know, uh, at least $40, $50, $60 and it could be even as much as $500 uh, for the 40,000 and the 50,000 subscriber. Every 1,000 subscribers, we're going to pick one random subscriber and send them a free gift. So this is an opportunity for anyone that's not subscribed to subscribe uh, because it doesn't matter whether you're the 40,000 or the 50,000 or you're the next subscriber right now. Uh, you could be one of those random subscribers that we pick. Uh, so uh, that's that's one thing. Uh, but also it's a good thing to uh, encourage your friends to subscribe to the channels so they can get an update in, in, in learning real Torah that's going to change their lives. Uh, last thing, which we're probably going to discuss much more tomorrow, uh, anyone that's noticed the new clip that we uh, sent out uh, that was part of our shiurim addressing or responding the morons from uh, uh, the uh, black Hebrew Israelites, they're losing their mind. I think they've already made about a half a dozen videos against me in the last 24 hours. So this is actually wonderful news uh, simply because it's, uh, it's, it's getting us to the next point of our goal, which is to try to reach some of their uh, victims, which is really their followers, and hoping that these people will actually uh, join us by learning our Torah and simply compare apple to apple. And that's really one of the main things that I want to let everyone know. Uh, regardless of who you listen to, regardless of whether you're listening to one of these rabbis that we've, uh, we've exposed in the past, or you're listening to these heretics from Christianity, the black Hebrew Israelites, or other Christian missionaries, or you're listening to the Muslims, or whoever you listen to. This is one thing I would propose to you. You're going to obviously planning to live in this world for 70, 80 years, however much time you're planning on living in this world, as long as possible, I'm assuming. So the key is that a person is going to invest a certain amount of time into their marriage, into their life as far as their livelihood. But of course, you need to invest some time into your life which is your eternity. One thing I recommend for every single person to do, because this is not going to cost you a single penny, and no one needs to know except you, which is invest 20 hours. 20 hours of watching their garbage versus watching 20 hours of our lectures. But what I would recommend if you're watching our lectures is pick a series and watch 20 lectures in a row. You know, obviously it doesn't have to be in one consecutive sitting because that's, you know, you'll, you won't go to sleep. But the point being is, if let's say, for example, you're picking this series or you're picking the Pekiavot series or you're picking the uh, Jewish Ashkafa series, whatever series we have, we have a playlist of different series, pick 20 lectures and watch them, you know, one after another in a row and compare that to 20 different videos by any one of these other morons that we've exposed. And I specifically emphasize that, yes, we are insulting them. We are aggressive against them because they're enemies of God. Needless to say, they're enemies of our people. So it's a mitzvah. It's a Torah commandment to insult such people. And of course, especially since they're destroying so many lives by making people believe things that are against the Torah, against Hashem's chosen people, against Hashem himself. 
So of course, what I would recommend is listen to 20 lectures, 20 lectures. It's going to be around 40 hours. If you want to do it less, let's say 10 lectures, about 20 hours. Either way, 20 to 40 hours of their garbage versus 20 to 40 hours of our Torah. And after you finish, you be the judge of who actually helped your life and educated you and improved your life as a result. No debate necessary, no fact checking, no nothing. Simply watch their material, watch our material, and there you'll have the answer in your hand. I would be surprised if even a single person would actually go the other way. Surprised, simply because it's not possible. Because all they talk about are things that are against God, and a person that's honest with themselves is certainly going to run away from it. So, Baruch Hashem, we have continued to progress in this series. The series has been a shocker to many people. We've had countless couples uh, you know, contact me uh, in different ways, sending messages, sending emails, all types of things saying that this series has literally changed their life uh, in a fashion that uh, they couldn't even think was possible. The way that they treat each other, the way that they uh, they address each other, the way that they simply are with each other behind closed doors uh, is something that, uh, you know, required change that they didn't even realize was required. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've heard from people is that literally this thing has fixed marriages in many aspects. I had... Uh, one uh, one couple where uh, the they had a very very serious problem where the woman the wife did not want to uh, spend any intimacy time with her husband I think already for the last few years maybe uh, they were together for I don't know twice or three times literally a nightmare uh, both for him and for her obviously if she doesn't want to be with him that badly that she won't even touch him for two or three years uh, with the exception of the couple of times uh, this is needless to say a, a nightmare for her to be as disgusted by her husband as she is or as repulsed or as whatever it is and of course for the guy for the guy it's uh, of course a, a very very difficult problem leads to wasting seed leads to all types of issues and these are religious couples this is not a secular couple. This is not a non-Jewish couple. This is a religious Jewish couple that had a very, very big disaster in their marriage. And I've tried to help them many times uh, with different things. Unfortunately, nothing worked until this series started. Once this series started, it literally changed their life because they looked at the act of being together completely differently. And Baruch Hashem, things are improving. On the other end, I also had a uh, a tragic uh, a tragic situation where uh, the woman uh, the woman was very very much uh, enthused uh, to actually change their intimate life she was very excited about it there was actually several women like this that were very excited about how they could view what uh, they weren't necessarily uh, too keen of sometimes uh, especially after pregnancy after this after that after life changes your body after too many fights all types of things that happen in their life where they simply the the the, the intimate part of their life deteriorated to uh you know to a point uh, where they thought was no return after watching this lecture many of them uh have uh, have changed things in a positive way but uh, there was one particular story where uh the woman told uh, this to her husband the husband uh was willing to watch after literally just a few moments of watching what the ramban 
says, and we're quoting, this husband apparently is uh, simply told his wife, listen, if this is what you want, then I'll just give you a get because I'm never going to be that person. I have no interest whatsoever. In so many words, I'm interested in being an animal. I'm not interested in being holy. I'm not interested in being kadosh. I'm not interested in being even decent. I'm interested in, in, in a divorce if this is what you want. Obviously, this is a tragic situation. Uh, this is not necessarily uh, something that the lectures caused. This is something that was already in the making beforehand. But it's always sad. It's always sad that people choose uh, the wrong side. People choose the negative side simply because they refuse to change. They refuse to build themselves. They refuse to overcome the yetzara, the evil inclination that's causing them to, uh, to continue doing bad things, doing things that are against God. And one thing I would recommend to anybody, whether it's the husband or it's the wife, you know, that is watching this series and you happen to have one of these spouses that is completely not interested in sanctifying themselves and even learning about it, needless to say, doing it, this should not discourage you at all. Why? Because you can still do your job. You can still do the part that you can do to sanctify yourself, to sanctify your acts, to sanctify your mind before, during, and after the act itself. So at the very least, you can be creating something positive that, believe it or not, not only will improve everything on your end, but could actually eventually also improve things on their end and influence them to a positive way. So don't give up. Don't just say, listen, if we're not both, uh, you know, jumping into it, then might as well give up on everything. This is completely the wrong way of approaching it. You do as much as you possibly can. Take as much as you can out of these lectures. Of course, there are certain things that we talk about in these lectures because these are issues of Kedusha. These are issues that are discussed by the greatest Kabbalist and the greatest uh, uh, holy, most holy people that ever existed. So there are certain things you're going to hear in this lecture tonight and others that are so far above and beyond where we stand today that it simply seems, uh, you know, like imaginary, like Adam and Eve. And this is actually one of the things we're going to talk about. So again, don't think that just because you can't do everything, you shouldn't do anything. Do whatever it is that you can. Even if that means having a pure mind for a few moments a day. Having a pure mind during that time. Having a pure mind a few minutes before it. Whatever it is. Whatever you can grab out of it, certainly it's going to help your life. And again, as the Ramban himself says later on in his book, this is actually something that... Uh, uh, applies to both Jews and Gentiles. It's not just for Jews. So certainly this is something that could help anybody's life. Uh, so the Ramban, in, uh, in our lecture last week, he uh, elaborated on the machloket that he has uh, with the Rambam, the, the, uh, uh, the Maimonides, where the Maimonides, look, it looks like they disagree, but in essence they agree just that the Ramban, Nachmanides, is disagreeing with the Rambam's use of Aristotle as a source of any kind whatsoever because Aristotle was just simply an impure piece of filth. Uh, and there's nothing to learn from such a person. Needless to say, he himself said it, Aristotle himself said it later on in his life. And this is a letter that's a famous letter that was published by the Me'am Loez a few hundred years ago. So now... The, uh, a person that has the right conclusion, but for the wrong reasons, is not someone that you can learn from, simply because 
the, the way to learn is the way to figure out how to repeat the process and if this person arrive at the right conclusion but with the wrong process there's really nothing to learn from this is what is in essence was the point of the ramban disagreeing with the rambam but the biggest part of it is that the rambam wanted to make sure or the ramban uh Nachmanides, wanted to make sure that we remove any foreign thought from our mind that the evil inclination tells us which is that intimacy between a man and his wife is something repulsive in the eyes of god is something uh, uh, uh demeaning is something filthy which is the mindset of christians and other uh, idol worshipers out there in the world they believe that it's a filthy act because their uh so-called holy person uh claims to be celibate claims to be uh, 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 a person that never touches a woman strangely there's always an orphanage right next to the church uh and the nuns are somehow always pregnant uh maybe it's like their uh their 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 god's mother uh that somehow got pregnant by some guy but she said it was somebody else so the key is to understand that these types of thoughts are foreign to the Torah and that was actually the point of the Ramban and one of the things that we're going to build on and see where this the, the 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 actual truth comes from is from the original sin the original sin the original act the original creation the, the original story of adam and eve or how we say in hebrew adam vechava chava i'm actually not really sure i never looked into it of how they turned chava into eve but i'm sure somebody here knows it doesn't matter everyone in the english-speaking world knows that eve is the wife of adam the question is if you look at the verses in the book of genesis you will see that adam and eve initially are naked but unashamed they're naked but unashamed but yet later on after they eat of the tree of knowledge they suddenly become ashamed now of course you would say oh before they didn't know about bad uh and now they ate ate from the tree of knowledge so because they know you know about uh doing bad things so therefore they're ashamed that doesn't necessarily always add up to most people it's it's just it seems inconclusive it seems incomplete what do you mean they ate from a tree where there was a grapes uh or it was a uh a a a pomegranate or was uh something else uh the key is that you know Gemara has multiple choices even chita wheat was one of the choices the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin says that the uh, tree of knowledge was the key is they ate something and that led them to be ashamed of being naked I mean if you were ashamed if you if technically if you were at a higher level spiritually before you ate then technically according to logic you should have been even more ashamed initially and less ashamed thereafter hence the world today is the proof where initially we were much more modest and today when we have less knowledge we are obviously people are walking around practically no different than the cattle do in the uh, in the farms you know the less clothing the uh, the, the more they feel uh, you know loved and beloved now of course this is a tool of the etzara but a person needs to have an answer for this and this is what the ramban is going to address tonight Be'ezrat Hashem, where last week we finished off where he was telling us that if the reproductive organs are repulsive 
how could the creator fashion something defective or repulsive the creator is perfect which means that everything he does is perfect so how could it be that a perfect being would create something imperfect now of course i know that some of you are thinking yeah but some people are born into this world blind deaf uh, uh you know uh retarded uh uh you know mental deficiencies of some kind uh you know uh, all types of uh, things that are deformities you know too tall too short you know all types of all types of things that are uh, obviously a uh, 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 imperfections or what we call in the, in the language of Torah they they have a deformity so technically it would seem that everything creates is not perfect but this is actually the exact proof that it is perfect when you understand the entire argument which we're going to get into so the Ramban continues and he says the following we are still in the second chapter which is discussing the first path the essence of marital union we're now going to continue and say the following if that were so meaning if the reproductive organs were repulsive would we find that his deeds were not perfect meaning is it even possible to think such a thing and not arrive at heresy i mean how could you think that the perfect creator could even create something that's imperfect and what's the proof yet we see Moshe Rabbeinu the master of all prophets say he brings a pasuk everything as I told you many many times everything that the sages say must have a source in the Torah to rely on and the Ramban brings the source Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 the rock which is uh, another description of God the rock whose work is perfect meaning God himself has in the Torah clear statement everything I do is perfect there is no such thing as imperfection in Hashem's eyes there's no such thing as imperfection from his acts it could be our perspective that's imperfect but that's because we're lacking information you could be seeing a wall that in essence could actually be a, a building you could be seeing a wall that's a uh, refraining you from going and moving on in a positive way but in reality this wall is actually protecting you from danger that's on the other side so when we lack information we lack truth what God has he has the complete truth the past the present the future the complete picture and therefore everything that he brings into this world is perfect because it takes everything into account and that's what he says in the verse and the rock whose work is perfect and the Ramban continues and brings another verse what's the other verse this is the verse we're talking about Adam Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 God saw everything that he made and behold it was very good so this is during creation this is before the nakedness aspect which we're going to get to in a moment but this is the creation itself in Genesis where God looked at his entire creation which means that he saw everything that exists that is man woman their sex organs their their reproductive aspect of their of their life the uh, the emotional aspect of their life all of the hormones all of the pros the cons the sins 
that could potentially happen, the mitzvot, everything that could possibly be. He saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, but very good. Meaning that God looked at his creation, This is what it says in Hebrew, for those Israelites that say I speak Yiddish, uh, I, I figured I'd read it for them because I don't speak Yiddish, and actually that's what Hebrew sounds like. Uh, but needless to say, uh, to uh, uh, to go back to our subject, we see that Hashem created everything, looked at the entire picture of His creation, and said, "This is very good." Meaning, there is nothing imperfect, there is nothing missing, there is nothing deformed, there is nothing repulsive. And now the Ramban explains how this could be. But this matter is as has been expressed, Baruch Hashem, blessed is God, where the Navi, the prophet Habakkuk, says, you are of eyes too pure to behold evil. The prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13, says about God, you are of eyes too pure to behold evil meaning that everything that Hashem creates is perfect where it is impossible for it to be the wrong way deformed uh, against what it's supposed to do at its creation point what happens thereafter that's caused by people that's a different story but the creation itself is perfect and therefore nothing that's in creation is viewed by the creator as something imperfect everything is as it should be whether it's the things that we view as positive or the things that we view as negative whether it's the things that are a uh, towards the ultimate purpose of serving hashem or even the things that would seem like it's against the purpose of serving Hashem, where you see uh, the, the, the number of idolaters grow in the world or the, the number of anti-Semites grow, that would seem like it's against the purpose. But this itself is also part of the ultimate plan. This itself is also viewed as perfect in the eyes of God, not that God wants murders and rapes and, and negative things to happen, but in essence, this is part of the perfect creation. It's part of the perfect machine, the universe that he created, and therefore his eyes see only pure, only purity. Nothing, nothing is evil in itself, meaning that nothing has a separate power that's, uh, that's against God. Everything is part of the ultimate plan, Everything is a, uh, a creator, a creation of the creator. Nothing is something that is uh, uh, the opposite of it. And therefore, there cannot be before him anything that is faulty or loathsome. And he created man and woman, and he created all their organs, prepared them in their form, and he did not create anything repulsive. The evidence is clear, says the Ramban, and what is said regarding the act of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
ולא יתבוששו. Here there's a clear verse in the Torah where HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us the first two people, Adam and his wife, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, are there standing around in Gan Eden that's in this world. There are two Gan Edens just like there are two Genoms. There's one that's a physical entity in this world and there's one that's a spiritual entity, if you will, in the upper worlds. So they're in a physical Gan Eden in this world and they're walking around naked and they're not ashamed. In fact, to them, it's not even something to notice. They're not even noticing that they are naked. This is perfectly normal. Now, of course, even if somebody is the, uh, an immodest person, even if they're an immoral person, they certainly would notice that they are naked. Even if they are doing it willingly and they're one of these filthy cows that is doing it uh, you know, as, as, as a profession, this Rabotai is still something that that person would be aware of so long as they're still somewhat, you know, sane. An average person would know that they're naked. Here the Torah is telling us that Adam and Chava, they were not naked, they were not ashamed, meaning they were not even noticing that there is a different possibility, that there is something that they're supposed to be doing. Hence the fact that Torah tells us that they were not ashamed. But the question is, why do I need to know this? We, of course, know that everything that's in the Torah is there for a reason. The Gemara in Masechet Megillah says that how many prophets did Am Yisrael have throughout history? And the Gemara says at least 1.2 million, which is the number that's double the amount of men between the ages of 20 and 60 that left Egypt, that Hashem took out of Egypt. 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60 uh, were left Egypt. So the Gemara says at least double that were prophets throughout history. But yet, only 55 prophets are mentioned in the Tanakh. 48 males, 7 females. So what happened to the rest of these prophets? Weren't their prophecies important? Weren't their prophecies the word of God? Weren't their prophecies things that we can learn from? And the Gemara gives us the perfect answer. An answer that we've discussed in previous years that is a really, if you dig into that answer, you understand how critical this answer is. The Gemara says, certainly the prophecies of everybody were important, but Hashem only included the prophecies that are relevant to all of the generations in his Tanakh. Meaning that the 24 books of the Tanakh, the five books of Moses, the books of the writings, uh, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the the Proverbs, the uh, uh, Psalms, all of these, uh, all these extraordinary books, the prophets, all of these extraordinary books are books that have every single word, every single word, every single sentence, every paragraph, every prophecy, everything, something that is stamped by the Creator Himself as relevant to every single generation and in fact, every single person that will ever be. 
will have some weight, some impact on that person. Whereas the other prophets, the Gemara says, the other 1.2 million prophets, their prophecies were pertaining to their generations. They were not prophecies that were, in essence, part of the eternal system. They were prophecies that pertain to their generations, hence the reason why God did not have them included in the Tanakh. Now, of course, some I, uh, uh, you know, naysayers that want to fight and uh, argue and debate and seem like as if they know more uh, will say, yeah, but you know, they, uh, maybe the, uh, the five books of Moses were written uh, you know, uh, by God, but yet uh, the, the 24 books, the rest of the books, the 19 books were written by people. Yes, you're right, but they were all divinely inspired. They were all by Ruach HaKodesh. They, were, they didn't just pick any Harry Potter book and include it in the Tanakh. There were even some books that uh, had an extraordinary amount of wisdom, but yet they were not included in the Tanakh because they were not divinely inspired. One of them was written by the, uh, the son of Jeremiah. Uh, uh, there's also books uh, that, uh, you know, that had certain amount of holiness in it, certain amount of wisdom in it, that simply were not part of the Tanakh because they were not divinely inspired from beginning to end, and therefore they were not uh, included into the, uh, into the Tanakh itself. But needless to say, all of the prophets, the 55 prophets that are mentioned in the Torah, and everything that they say, these are things that are relevant to every single generation, to every single person, at every single time. It's of course, a person needs to learn how it's relevant to you and at different times during their life and so on. But the point being here is that if every single word and every single sentence and every single paragraph has such a high level of, of, of sanctity, high level of importance, then that is, that's even more of a, uh, a critical case against the purpose of this verse we just read in Genesis of God telling us, and they were both naked, man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. Now, you told me you created man. Good. You told me you took from his rib. As the Midrash says, Hashem picked the rib of, uh, you know, of the man uh, instead of the leg, instead of the arm, instead of any other place because the rib is always covered, it's always modest, which is the ultimate purpose of a woman is to be modest. So you took the rib and you made that into his wife. Great. Then... They had a, uh, a, a little bit of a problem when the uh, serpent came into the picture, fooled them into eating the tree of knowledge. Then you told us about how they had children. Then you told me about how they, uh, uh, their children uh, got into some trouble. Then you told us about how they, uh, one of the kids died. And then you told us about how they had another child. He told us a lot of different things about Adam and Chava. Fine. We know the story. We know there's a lot of interesting things there. He named the animals. Each animal is, is named based on its purpose because the wisdom that Adam Rishon had was something that's beyond comprehension for us. I get it. What purpose does mean knowing that they were naked and unashamed serve? I mean, if Chazal did not explain it, we could easily say this is a purposeless statement. What could I learn from it? Because certainly it's not relevant to today. 
You can't walk around today and say, no, I'm not ashamed to be naked, so therefore it's allowed. Obviously, that's not the case. And certainly, if this verse is there, it's relevant to you. It's not just relevant to what happened. The the Torah is not a storybook. It's a book of laws that has stories in it in order to explain certain things that happen, explain certain things that need to happen. But here we have a verse that tells us both were naked, man and wife, and were not ashamed. Later on, of course, they were ashamed. So the first question is, what do I need to know this verse for? Second, why were they later ashamed? Now, the traditional answer that I myself have even said and, and others uh, that I've heard have said is that simple. They had a, uh, they made the sin, so they gained, by eating it from the tree of knowledge, they gained a lot of knowledge, and that knowledge, in essence, made them uh, ashamed. This is a little bit a, uh, difficult to accept at face value simply because the ultimate purpose of a person in this world that we learned from the Ramban himself in last week's shiur is to attain the knowledge of God. So it would contradict if you're eating from the tree of knowledge, that means you attained knowledge. So therefore, if anything, you should be less ashamed, not more ashamed. This is again the way the rational logical mind works without the help of the holy sages hence the reason why we need them in order to even know how to walk so the ramban explains to us all this was prior to their sinning they were engaged in solely ethereal matters and all their intentions were for the sake of heaven for them the sexual organs were no different from eyes or hands or other organs of the body this is the difference this is the difference and again this is the key part of not only the answer and the shoe but also the key part of understanding what it means to transform yourself from wherever you're at to a state of holiness when a person views the world from their perspective that is full of sins full of impurities full of past present immodesty and immorality then certainly reading a book that says the man and woman were there and naked and unashamed doesn't really make much sense makes them sound like stupid people makes them sound you know like cavemen makes them sound strange doesn't really sound like they're elevated they're holy they're anything but here the ramban elaborates he says the reason why they were there naked and unashamed is because before they made that first sin everything that they did everything that they thought about was for the sake of serving the creator was for the sake of heaven and because of that their souls were so highly elevated that everything had a purpose of serving the creator 
and thereby there was no difference between one thing and another eyes eyes are for me to read the Torah eyes are for me to recognize the gift of creation eyes are for me to recognize all of the wonderful things that God gave me eyes are for me to appreciate the beauty of my spouse uh, eyes are for me to do a lot of wonderful things ears ears are for hearing good things ears are for hearing uh holy things ears are a tool for me to hear the word the word of hashem mouth mouth is for me to speak to my creator mouth is for me a way for me to pray to him and plead to him and thank him mouth is for me is to express my feelings towards my spouse mouth is for me a way for me to learn the torah out loud so therefore i can use multiple senses in order to serve my creator during my learning because that way i will be able to remember it because if i'm learning out loud then i'm also listening to myself so i'm speaking i'm listening this is something that will help my memory help me commit this holy torah to my life to my engraving into my heart this is why when they asked Rav Elchanan Vasselman, Allah Shalom. How is it that the Rav has such a uh, wonderful memory uh, that doesn't forget any Torah? And the Rav said to them, "It's not true. I don't really have a good memory. I have an average memory." Yes, but the Rav remembers everything. We ask the Rav a question; he can give us a source, a page number, uh, an answer for every Allah question. I mean. Uh, the Rav clearly has a good memory he says no I don't have a good memory if you ask me regular questions about different things I don't have a uh, exceptional memory it's just that the Holy Torah tells us that a person that forgets his Torah is going to get punished this is one of the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot so I don't want to be punished so I don't forget meaning the fear of punishment is why i remember not because i have a good memory this is one of the things that a person that knows how to use the tools that hashem gives him whether it's the the fear of heaven or other things this is how a person could literally elevate themselves to a level that's incomprehensible to a regular person your memory improves as a result of your fear of god but it's not your memory for everything it's only memory for things that are pertaining to your servitude of God so here the Adam and Chava are engaged solely in things that are for the sake of serving their creator and all of their intentions are for the sake of heaven and therefore their sex organs were no different than the rest of their organs whether it be their eyes their fingers their hands their legs anything else now if a person considers this and starts thinking about who is this Adam Rishon? who is this Adam Rishon? how did he get to this point what did he do you're gonna arrive at Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin and the Gemara says Adam Rishon was not something that you compared to anything in the world today not just because of his size but simply the position that God put him in where the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin page 59b says that the serpent 
was really created to be the servant of men. And had the serpent not violated the law, saying bad things about God, causing Adam and Chavat to sin, there was actually supposed to be a job, a role for the serpent to help man serve God by working for him. Where man was supposed to learn Torah all his days, and the serpent was supposed to go into different places in the world to go gather precious stones and sell it for him in the market in order for man to continue to learn Torah without being disturbed. But this was a very big loss and every every person, every Jew was supposed to have multiple serpents. Now this wasn't only the job of the serpent. In fact, the angels themselves, the Gemara says, the ministering angels would roast meat for Adam Arishon and strain wine for him. They would literally do a barbecue for Adam Arishon while he was in Gan Eden. Now people ask, wait a minute. Gemara asks, well, how did they make barbecue if he wasn't allowed to eat uh, the animals? Don't worry. He wasn't eating the animals. They were bringing meat from heaven. So Gemara asks, is there such a thing, meat from heaven? So of course, you have the manna. It's like, yeah, but that was a special miracle for the generation of knowledge, the generation of Moshe Rabbeinu, that Hashem will put, bring down manna. It's like, no, but it's not just for them. There was also different times throughout history where Hashem made a miracle and brought different food from heaven. As we uh, know that the um, uh, one of the tzaddikim, Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta, who was traveling along the road, and a bunch of lions, a pack of lions went on the road and started roaring at him. And he cries out to Hashem, saying, the young lions roar after their prey. This is a, uh, a verse in uh, Psalm 104, verse 21. Meaning he knows that he's, they're roaring at him because they want to eat him. So he's crying out to Hashem. He was such a tzaddik that Hashem brought down two huge legs of meat two huge pieces of meat the lions jumped on one of them and one of them was left for him he took this brought it to the bet midrash and he asked the chachamim the sanhedrin asked them is this kosher he told where'd you get it which butcher what kind of kashrut he goes no no i'll tell you the story I was on the road coming to yeshiva, coming to learn Torah. All of a sudden, a bunch of lions jumped in the way. They were about to eat me. I prayed to Hashem. Hashem, send me a miracle. These uh, two huge pieces of meat fell down from heaven. The lions ate one of them and then went away. They were full. And one was left and this is it. Chachamim say, of course it's kosher. Because nothing that's uh, uh, non-kosher comes from heaven. Everything that comes from heaven is pure. So Rabbi Zera, one of the Chachamim says, wait, what if it was uh, donkey legs? Is that kosher too? What if it was an entire donkey? Came from heaven. Is that kosher too? Chachamim say, yes. If it comes from heaven, even if it's a donkey, it's kosher. Why? Because we have a tradition, part of our Torah, Everything that comes from heaven is pure. It's perfect. 
so here we have the angels bringing down meat from heaven cooking it barbecue for Adam Rishon making him special wine best type this is how elevated he was so he could learn Torah so he could serve his creator the serpent saw this and didn't like it got jealous and decided that he's going to try to destroy man by causing him to sin so he could marry Chava so he can marry his wife so here we see that Adam Rishon was something very very special this was what Am Israel merited to get to at Mount Sinai before they sinned with the golden calf at Mount Sinai the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that the angels came to each and every single Jew and put two crowns on him elevated their wisdom elevated their knowledge elevated their being to the same level as Adam Rishon meaning something that is unbelievable every one of them became a prophet already at Yamsuf at the, the, the uh, crossing of the Sea of Reeds but this elevated them even more so and therefore before the sin the reproductive organs of Adam and Chava were viewed as simply just like anything else that they have in their body. And that's what Kohelet, Shlomo HaMelech says in Kohelet in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29, but see, this I did find. God has made man simple, meaning straight, but they sought many intrigues meaning that due to people's actions they end up soiling the pure neshama that God gave them now the Ramban continues and says the following however when they lusted after fleshy delights and their intentions were not for the sake of heaven then it says in Bereshit in Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 and they knew that they were naked meaning that the nakedness wasn't oh now I have knowledge that nakedness exists no oh now I understand the difference between good and evil that's why I understand that being naked is evil no if you actually had more knowledge before you sinned yet more knowledge before you sinned meaning that if it was based on knowledge you should have actually known that you were naked beforehand no it's due to the act that you did before you sin before you sinned the acts that you did that you stopped acting solely for the sake of heaven you stop using the creation that God gave you for the sake of heaven that created the thought process that is no longer clean you soiled that neshama you soiled that body you soiled that mind because you decided to put it 
on something else that's not for the sake of heaven. And that is why you now view your nakedness differently than you did beforehand. Now, this is something the Ramban is telling us where he elaborates on it here and he says, and this is interpreted as follows. When the hands write a scroll of Torah in purity, they're honored and praiseworthy. However, when those very same hands steal or do something evil, they are loathsome. So it was with the sexual organs of Adam and his wife Eve prior to their sinning. However, after they sinned, the sin was affected every organ. So the tools that Hashem gave you, those hands, those legs, the head, the eyes, the sex organs, everything is something that if you would continue using it in purity, then this would be something that you, there would be no this difference, no difference between your finger and your male member. No difference between your chest and her chest. No difference between your legs and her legs. No difference between this and that. Why? Because all of them are different tools for you to serve the Creator. The second that you used it in an evil way, you've changed the tool. You've changed the thought process behind it. You've changed its purpose. Just like if you write a Sefer Torah, your hands become holy. But if you use those very same hands, to waste seed, to steal, to hit somebody, to do things that are evil, things that are against the Torah, then certainly those very same tools that were holy before you sinned have turned into something loathsome. Now, where else do we see this? We also see this in Parashat Chaye Sarah, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 2, where Avram Avinu is making a covenant with his servant Eliezer, giving him clear instructions to go find a wife for his son Yitzchak, but giving him the red line that cannot be crossed, under no condition can my son marry a Canaanite, and under no condition can you bring my son over there. Go find somebody, bring her here. If you found somebody but she doesn't want to come, you've done your job, you don't need to do anything else. If you can't find anybody, can't find anybody. But the condition is, go find somebody from my family, not a Canaanite, and bring her back here. Okay, no problem. No, no, no. This is a very, very serious role. We, I need you to vow. I need you to vow that you're going to listen to every word that I say. Number one, I don't know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow, so I need you to make sure that you keep this word even if I'm not alive. Two, you're going to be operating when I'm not around you, so there's no way for me to tell whether you listen to me or not. So I need you to vow. Okay? Tradition was that when you vow, when you swear, you hold on to a mitzvah. You hold on to something holy. This is, by the way, a custom that's still observed by some people around the world. Avraham told Eliezer, you need to put your hand on something holy. 
The holiest thing that I have, Avram says, is my Brit. Why? That's the first mitzvah that God gave me personally. So put your hand on my Brit. Meaning, the male member. Now, of course, the sages speak of how it was covered. But still, the dirty mind that is standard today immediately goes into a foreign, unholy, despicable place. Thinking, what? Avram, had somebody touch his male member, maybe this, maybe that. All types of foreign things that should not be said, should not be thought, and literally should not exist. But nonetheless, this is a world full of dirty minds that have watched pornography, that have made all types of immorality crimes on their own and with other people, that think crooked and the opposite of Torah. So naturally, what they would think is, yeah, oh, another guy touched the male member, was there, oh, no. So they're going to try to, if they want to remain close to God or try to keep uh, 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 connected to the law, they'll try to rationalize it or, in essence, uh, change it. Change it in a way that is more acceptable. Well, it's no, no. It was really, he didn't put it there. He put it like on the leg. Or he didn't really put it there. It was like figuratively speaking. He didn't really put it over there. It's like they made it seem like it was, but it wasn't really that. Or they, they'll try to run. But the truth is, that's what it was. And this happened multiple times. Yaakov Avinu makes Yosef HaTzadik his son swear to him in the same exact way in Egypt where he tells him that you're, you promise me, you vow that you're going to bury me in Marat HaMachpelah, the cave of Machpelah. Yes, the very same cave that that false New Testament has a wrong address on. Something you could verify today because you could go to the Marat HaMachpelah. We know exactly where it is, but the New Testament somehow forgot. So this Rabotai is a critical, critical piece of information here that is in the Torah that most people cannot get their head around. Not because there's something wrong with what is said, but rather because there's something wrong with what we've done to ourselves. Where we, our natural inclination is to view that in a pornographic inappropriate disgusting despicable filthy way and immediately a person that doesn't want to go against god will try to adjust it in a way that is understandable in society today no avram was very holy of course he wouldn't do that it was on his thigh Oh, it was this, it was that, it was figuratively speaking in all types of mumbo-jumbo. Truth is, this is what it was though. And it's actually our fault that we can't understand it. Because we have a filthy mind. We think of all types of things. But this Rabotai is what happened with Adam and Chava. They did not recognize that they were naked, they were not ashamed of it. Not because they didn't think, oh, we're naked or there's a different you know naked with clothes without clothes no it was just that simply every single part of creation including my body is god's property everything is god's property therefore he calls the shots he tells me what to do my role in the world is to serve my master to serve him so that means this hand 
I need to find a way to serve him with it. This hand, I need to find a way to serve him with it. These eyes, I need to find a way to serve him with it. Male member, I need to find a way to serve him with it. Feet, I need to find a way to serve him with it. The uh, Whatever it is that you have, money, house, cars, whatever it is, I need to find a way to serve my master with this. And therefore, when everything becomes a tool to serve the creator, they're all the same. They're all simply tools. There is no favorite tool, big tool, small tool, old tool, young tool, nothing like everything is a tool to serve Hashem. The second you started using the tools that Hashem gave you in an inappropriate way. What's an inappropriate way? Inappropriate way is to serve yourself, to serve your lusts, to serve your desires. Meaning you're here to enjoy yourself and whenever you get a chance, you'll do something for your creator. You're no longer a servant. In fact, you could even call yourself a master since you're the one that's choosing when to serve and when not to serve. This is why Hashem called Moshe Rabbeinu Moshe Avdi, Moshe, my servant. Why, why is Moshe Rabbeinu called Moshe, my servant, and nobody else is called Moshe, my servant? Why, why is it, why? Because Moshe simply removed his own personal desire. So much so that when God told him to leave his wife, Moshe did not even argue. Why would God want Moshe Rabbeinu to leave his wife? Because Hashem wanted to speak to Moshe whenever he wanted. All of the other prophets, including Aaron Cohen, Miriam, the brother and sister of Moshe, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Chabakuk, Yeshaya, Isaiah, everybody else, when God wanted to speak to them, they had to be prepared. They had to go dip in a mikveh, purify themselves. Sometimes they would have to fast. Sometimes they would have to go to sleep. They would, uh, they would speak to him during a dream, during an epilepsy, a meditation. Everyone had to prepare in order to speak to God. God did not want this with Moshe. He said, Moshe, I want to speak to you like one friend speaks to another. Whenever I feel like it. No preparation. But the only way that's possible is if you are in a constant state of purity, which means you can no longer be intimate with your wife ever again. Moshe was the first and last person that God ever requested this from. So here we see that Moshe became the servant because he literally utilized every single bit of himself to serve the Creator. So much so that the Avot de Rabbi Natan says about the different conversation that God had with Moshe Rabbeinu during his last day, literally during the last moments, Hashem wanted to appease Moshe, that even though he was taking his neshama, he wanted to show Moshe Rabbeinu how special he is. So he sent him the Malach HaMavit. He sent him the angel of death. The angel of death was scared of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is learning Torah, he sees the Malach HaMavit. What do you want? I'm studying. Malach HaMavit says to Moshe, well, I'm here to take your uh, neshama. Moshe Rabbeinu says to him, Chatsuf! Shame on you! You're interrupting me while I'm learning Torah? Get out of here! You can't touch me when I'm learning Torah. 
Malach HaMavet ran away. Says to Hashem, Moshe doesn't want to come. Hashem laughs. Says to Malach HaMavet, go again, go again, it's your job. Malach HaMavet comes. Bothers Moshe Rabbeinu again. Moshe says, what do you want again? He says, it's my job, I have to take you in Hashem. God sent me, it's my job. He said, I told you, get out of here, I'm learning Torah right now. And he yells at him. Malach HaMavet runs away. Imagine, Malach HaMavet, Malach HaMavet is from here to the sky. Full of eyes, scary as can be. Moshe Rabbeinu is what he's scared of. Malach HaMavet goes up to Shemaim, says to Hashem, Hashem, he doesn't want to come. I can't, I can't do it. He's in the middle of learning Torah, I can't touch him. Hashem laughs. He says, go, go, go again, go again, go again, go again, do it again, do it again. But he doesn't want to come. Go again, I said. Okay, okay, go. He goes again. Moshe Rabbeinu gets upset at Malach HaMavit. He says, you're bothering me again. He takes his staff and he tarach the Malach HaMavit and takes out one of his eyes. Malach HaMavit runs. He goes up to Shemaim. He says, Hashem, I'm not going back. I'm I'm finished. This guy almost killed me. He almost killed me. Hashem laughs and he comes to Moshe. He says, Moshe, my dear son. Why did you do that to the Malach HaMavit? He says, Hashem, I'm learning Torah. He wants to kill me. He says, but you know, Moshe, it's your time. You know it's your time. I need to take your neshama. The body of Moshe, the body of Moshe, cries out to Hashem, meaning that he sanctified the body to such an extent that literally it became something different than what we can comprehend. The body of Moshe says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ribono She'olam, Master of the World. How could I say, how could I serve you better outside of this body? If you take the body, you bury it somewhere in the world, it goes to waste. But this body has become so holy that it serves you with every single aspect to the point where it's in the same level as the neshama. It's in the same level as the neshama. The neshama of Moshe Rabbeinu, the body of Moshe Rabbeinu became one, mamash. Moshe Rabbeinu is got to the point that's unimaginable for us. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu loved Moshe Rabbeinu so much that he told him, I know, even though that's the case, still it's your time to go. This is your time to go. So he asked him, so why'd you send the Malach HaMavet then? If you were going to do it yourself, he says, because I want to make you happy to show you how much I love you that no one else in the world has the right to touch you other than me. Even Malach HaMavit, that's his sole job in the world, is to take their lives, he can't touch you. When Moshe Rabbeinu heard how much Hashem loves him, that was it. Hashem kissed him, then Hashem went up to Shamaim, and that was it. But that means that a person can elevate their body to such an extent that every aspect of themselves can become a tool to serve God. Now, of course, I know some of you are hearing this. What are you talking about? I'm barely keeping Shabbat. I'm barely eating kosher. I'm barely protecting my eyes even in, 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 in my own uh, uh, bathroom. Like, it's a, what are you talking Where is this and where is me? I got you. I know. I understand. The point is to understand where our tzaddikim were, where our sages were, where our forefathers were, number one, so we can appreciate them. 
and two we have something to aspire certainly we cannot reach the level of Moshe Rabbeinu but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do something better than what you're doing now so the Ramban is telling us that when Adam Arishon and Chavai's wife were using every part of their body to serve Hashem everything was the same but the moment they lusted after fleshly delights for themselves the moment they used their body for their own desires for their own lust for their own thing that's when everything became different why yes I could use this hand to write a Sefer Torah or I could use it to take from the tree that I'm not allowed to take I could use these eyes to learn Torah or I could use these eyes to look at something inappropriate I could use the male member to make a mitzvah or I could use it to just fulfill the lust and on and on so that in essence was the difference that happened after the sin it wasn't the gain of knowledge that caused them to believe uh, to look at nakedness differently it was the fact that they sinned that now made all of those foreign thoughts a standard now of course it's not a standard like us and people today but the point is in their level aside from that one of the things that the a person that could help a person understand this is what the Ramban says next it says there is that which is laudatory which in Hebrew is shevach praiseworthy something good there's something that which is laudatory when uh, uh, the man performs what is good so too there is ugliness gnai in Hebrew and offensiveness when man does evil so it was with Adam regarding the reproductive organs and thereby it is evident that God's ways are just pristine and pure and so it is evident that all that is ugly results from man's activities and regarding this Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon said as I said uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29 behold this only have I found that God made man upright but they have sought out many inventions initially God created us perfect with every tool that he gave us having a purpose to serve him whether it's the tools that is our body itself or the tool that is the world around us this is why when you read the Torah you cannot read it literally because there's an endless amount of wisdom in the Torah that when you read it in a different language you're never going to get when you read it without commentary you're simply going to get to a mistake for example one of the examples I gave recently is read the first verse of the Torah now if you read it in English from one of these false testament Bibles it says in the beginning in the beginning of creation blah 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 great now if you read it in Hebrew Bereshit bara elokim et first and foremost you understand that Bereshit is not just some it's not the typical word that's used for beginning number two you understand that this sentence 
was structured in a following manner. It's in a unique manner. Number one, the word Bereshit means more than just the beginning, but rather it means Rosh. Rosh is head. And the Ramban says Bereshit means with wisdom. With wisdom, God created the heaven and the earth. What does it mean with wisdom? With wisdom meaning that every single creation, the ones we're aware of and unaware of, the ones inside us and outside of us, the ones that are beyond us, the ones that are near us, every single thing, past, present, future, everything was created with wisdom, with a purpose, part of the ultimate plan of God. There is no such thing as something separate from the purpose. There is no such thing that has a power outside of that purpose. Everything is part of the overall system. Even idolatry of, of, of Yoshke that came into the world, of, of New Testament that came into the world for the last couple of thousand years, the Rambam elaborates. That too, that too is something that is part of the ultimate purpose of the world where even though they're all considered idolaters in the eyes of God according to our holy Torah if you're praying to some guy if you believe in the new testament altogether you're you're believing in something that is a false testament heretical and full of idolatry and you cannot say that you believe in Jesus and without believing in the new testament or without believing in Christianity because the only testament that attests to his existence his righteousness or anything positive about him is that very same false testament and you cannot say no but the quran also mentions him because the quran piggybacks off of the new testament point being is if you're reading the new testament you believe the new testament that means you are christian and you're considered an idol worshiper in the eyes of god but that does not mean that your existence is purposeless rather it means that even the existence of the worst idolaters is still part of the ultimate purpose of the world with the rambam maimonides says these christians and the muslims were part of the messianic mission uh, purpose of the world where before they came into the world these christians and the uh, the different versions of them and the muslims there was only judaism and idolatry statues of all types uh, and all types of a, uh, uh, sacrifices to their statues and so on. That's what there was. So to take someone that's praying to a statue, to take someone that is burning their babies for the sake of their statue, to take someone that is relieving themselves as a way of serving their statue, there are all types of different I- I- idolatry in the world over the years. Anyone that wants to go into uh, details of some of these things, go into the Gemara, Masichet Sanhedrin, the sixth chapter and seventh chapter talk about all types of different idolatry that existed. Point being is, these idols are, were disgusting, despicable, horrible, and so on, but that's what existed. That is what existed until Judaism came along. Judaism came along, that means that there was Judaism and this idolatry. Now, again, before Judaism, there was still the Torah, but that was the Noahide law. So there was the Noahide law. So when it says that uh, Avraham Avinu uh, would convert everybody, this was before the birth of Judaism. Judaism was born at Mount Sinai. But the Torah itself preceded the world, 974 generations. Meaning that when Avraham Avinu was converting people, he was converting people to the seven Noahide laws. But then you have a, a structured religion which was the uh, given to us at Mount Sinai. That's the beginning of Judaism. 
which means that starting in Judaism 3,334 years ago, you have Judaism and you have idolatry. Different forms of idolatry, but idolatry nonetheless, that is as far removed from Judaism as can possibly be. Statues and animals and so on and so forth. Then you have about almost 1,500 years later, about 2,000 years ago, you have Christianity. Now, Christianity initially started by a bunch of Jews that were, uh, 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 in essence, thinking that they were practicing Judaism, but just in a different way. Certainly, they were all ignorant fools and so on. But the point being is, none of them actually knew the, uh, the Jesus himself, as far as the people that actually wrote the Bible itself. None of them actually knew Jesus. None of them saw him. But needless to say, this religion is brought, is brought into the world, which takes the creator, the, the master of the world, and unfortunately, humanizes him. Turns him into a physical flesh, which in itself is a form of idolatry. Then it separates them and splits them up into three. Another form of idolatry. And that's why Rav Sternbach, Shichye, says there is no higher level of idolatry than Christianity. He writes this in one of his Chuvot. Nothing, nothing goes against God more than Christianity. Now, the, uh, this happens. Then you have about 600 years later, the Muslims, Islam, come into the world. They're monotheistic, unlike some of their forefathers that were idol worshippers. Nonetheless, they're also against the Torah. They're also heretical. They're, they're a completely different uh, creature altogether. But these two things are part of the ultimate purpose. Why? Because they brought the world that was not practicing Judaism and was not practicing the Noahide laws closer to the truth. Because to take someone that's praying to a statue, that's sacrificing his babies, burning them, doing all types of horrible things, and to bring him to Judaism, to bring him to the one and only God, to bring him to the truth of the Torah, is too far of a stretch for for such a person. But to take them from their falsianity, which they don't think is falsianity, they think it's true. They don't think it's idolatry, they think it's perfectly fine to believe that God is a person. They think it's perfectly fine for God to be three. They think it's perfectly fine for the, the messengers ne- to never meet any the, the, uh, their, their master, their creator, their anything. They think it's perfectly fine that the whole book contradicts itself and has endless amount of mistakes. They think it's all perfectly fine. So they believe they are monotheistic and they are going in the right direction, so much so that they think that their job in the world is to bring the Jews to them, Chaz Needless to say, the Muslims believe the same thing. They believe in the one God. They, uh, in their language, God is Allah. And they are very zealous towards Him. They have certain things that they're doing that are very similar to Judaism, such as modesty, the Brit Milah, and so on. Which, by the way, as a side note, the Rambam, Paskins, that the Arabs, are the Muslims, are obligated obligated unlike the rest of the nations they're obligated to do a brit milah they're obligated to circumcise themselves unlike the rest of the nations because they are uh, uh, related to the uh, to uh, to hagar adam alishon's uh, 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 you know maidservant either way this we'll discuss later on in the future point being is that they are in essence they believe they're monotheistic no different and in their perspective even superior to the jews so to bring them once the real Mashiach comes, once Hashem shows the real truth, and to show that to them is going to be much easier for them to adjust 
to accept it than obviously to take them from complete idolatry to statues and, 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 uh, and animals and so on. Now, of course, this stuff has to happen before. Once the Mashiach comes, you know, to, to, uh, a person that's an idolater, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be too late. But the point is the Messianic times. The Messianic times, there's a lot of people that are converting, a lot of people are leaving their idolatry and coming to Judaism. Either way, the Rambam says the creation of these other religions is part of the ultimate purpose because even though they're in the wrong direction, the wrong uh, 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 um, way right now, they're still on that path that Hashem has that's towards the ultimate truth eventually. And that's why... And the, the prophet Zechariah says that a third of the world will survive. Certainly a third of the world is not all Jews. There's, what, 20 million Jews in the world that we know of, uh, probably quite a few more that we don't know of. But still, even if you take all the ones we know of and we don't know of, uh, you're not going to get even close to a, a third of the world. If you get to, uh, if you get to, to uh, 5% of the world, it it's uh, would be miraculous. So... How is a third of the world going to survive the, the war of Gog and Magog, the last uh, uh, destruction that happens that's brought to the world to destroy all the wicked and save the righteous? Because there's going to be a lot of righteous Gentiles. Where are they coming from? They're coming from Christianity and Islam. But of course, the righteous ones among them, not the ones that are trying to kill Jews or trying to say that they are the Jews and, all, and missionizing and all types of other nonsense. So now, Rabutai every single part of the creation is part of the ultimate plan and shlomo amelech says when i when hashem creates created man he created them perfect but it was man that sought out new inventions meaning that he took the tool that hashem gave him to serve him and decided to do things that are to serve himself he gave you a hammer to build a house a house of god Instead, you took the hammer and you started hitting people with it. He gave you eyes to read the Torah, to look at holiness. You started using your eyes to look at immodesty, of things that are filthy in the eyes of God. And that's why when a person looks at a pair of tefillin, a holy pair of tefillin, you have two black boxes with scrolls inside them, uniquely structured, Different sections of the Torah. You have the ones that you're obligated to put on the Rashi. Every man, 13 and above, uh, Jewish man, 13 and above, has to lay on tefillin every day except Shabbat and holidays. You have to put on tefillin. Once you get married, you put on also the uh, the Rashi, and you also have to put on Rabbeinu Tam, but just the Rabbeinu Tam are without a blessing. The difference between the two, they both have the same exact statement, uh, verses from the Torah inside them, just a different order. So when a person looks at a pair of tefillin, if they are aware of what it is, they see something holy, they kiss it, they appreciate it. They don't think of anything foreign. They don't think of any girl that they saw or they're imagining in some horrible way. They're not thinking that. They see a box of tefillin. This is what you use to pray every morning when you are praying shachrit. But yet, the moment they put on their tefillin, 
if they looked at any woman that was immodest in the recent past, whether it was on the way to shul, whether it was on the internet, or whether it was last week at work, wherever it was, all of a sudden that woman appears in their mind, and all of a sudden she doesn't look like a woman, she looks like some bema, she looks like some animal, she looks inappropriate and it's in his mind. How can you think like that when you have tefillin on, you chamol, you donkey? How can you think that? How? No, I'm not doing it on purpose. You're right. Now you're not doing it on purpose. But when you looked at her last week or last night or on the internet, or on your phone, or on this, or on the streets, that when you did it on purpose. So you know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. You see, your eyes are two cameras. They don't need batteries. They don't need electricity. They just need your neshama to work. And everything that you look at, digitally, 4K, 50K, best picture in the world, everything, especially the stuff that's inappropriate. Why? The one that's behind the camera is the Satan himself. Everything. And it goes into the endless storage house that you have. 5 million terabytes of information in that mind. And guess what? Access to the information based on request, but not always your request. Sometimes it's his request. So you are going to work, you're going to do business, eh, you'll do, you'll think about numbers, you'll think about houses, you'll think about all types of things related to work. You go and try to think about a Kadosh Baruch Hu. You put on your tefillin and all of a sudden, all of the zonot that you saw over the last few months appear in your mind all at the same time in order and structure and different outfits. Hashem Yishmov Yatzil. How did you do this to yourself? How did you do this to yourself? How did you do it? No, but I don't want to think about it. Yeah, you should have thought about that when you're thinking about it. So what are you going to say? The tefillin caused you to sin? No. Tefillin don't cause anybody to sin. You sinned and therefore it affected you when you were putting on tefillin. This is why when they asked Rav Shach, Allah Shalom, one of the giants among giants over the last hundred years, Rav Shach, Kodesh Kodeshim, they asked him, Kvod Rav, there are sections in the Talmud, in the Gemara, that talk about the different parts of the female body. There are parts of the Torah in practically every Masechet that talk about the issues between him and her. Sometimes more descriptive, sometimes less descriptive. Sometimes it talks about the issues of incest and how it's forbidden and the punishment for it. But on the way to the punishment, it gives you certain details. Oh, she was with a father, she was with a sister, she was this, she was that. All of these things. We should teach that to young kids. 14 years old, 13 years old. They have all these hormones. Arab Shach HaKadosh says to them, we have a Masoret, we have a Masoret, we have a tradition. No one can get hurt from the Torah. No one can get hurt from learning Torah. So how do you explain 
that the young boy opened a Talmud, Masechet Sanhedrin, Masechet Avodah Zarah, Masechet this, Masechet that, and he opens and he gets to a page where it talks about the issues of him and her. It talks about the female body. It talks about the menstrual cycle. It talks about the uh, Parashat Sota, where they uh, they rip her Kisui uh, Rosh, and after they rip her clothes and show her chest, and all types of things. It talks about things. It gives the kid thoughts. He starts thinking. He starts thinking. So how do you explain that? It has nothing to do with the Torah. He's only thinking inappropriate. Not because of the Torah. It's because of what he saw and what he looked at before he learned Torah. Last night when he was on the phone when no one was looking. And last night when he was with his friends. Last week when he was walking to the store and looking at this and looking at that. That is what caused him to think about it when he looked at the Gemara. Had he only looked at the Gemara. Had he only looked at the Holy Torah, then certainly nothing inappropriate would enter his mind. I know a few very, very holy people. That's very hard to explain to people because this type of holiness doesn't really exist. And most of the time people would understand it in such a horrible way, they would think that there's something wrong with these people. Little do they know, these are some of the holiest people that exist on planet Earth. One of these people tells me one time when we're talking about different things, how they grew up, who did that, you know, this is a person that literally was like born inside a Sefer Torah, glued to the Sefer, glued to the Torah, glued to everything, and learning and finishing the Shas many times before he was, uh, before he was married, and uh, somebody that was literally, uh, I don't know, like something that's from a different generation brought into this world. And he tells me, listen, the things that the way you grew up is not just different the way I grew up. The things that you saw, the things that you tell me you saw, the things that, you know, that he goes, I didn't know those things existed. I said, what do you mean you didn't know those things existed? How do you not know about women? And he says, you don't understand. I was so glued to the Torah, I didn't know about all of this promiscuity and the stuff that happens in the world. I'm like, what do you, how do you not know? He goes, okay, let me... He goes, okay, you guys probably, when you were young, he tells me, you guys probably already grew up knowing, you know, things about happen and, you know, like, yeah, what do you mean? It's like, you know, like the thing, and it's uncomfortable for them. You know, the tzaddikim, they, they speak with a holy tongue. It's like, you know, like where babies come from. I said, yeah, uh, what do you mean? We, we learned this in public school, fifth grade. He's like, yes, yeah, that's the thing. In the... In, in my world, he tells me, I only found that after I got married. He said, excuse me? What do you mean? What do you mean after you got married? He goes, yeah, I only found out after I got married. Now, you talk to, like, you, you talk to different tzaddikim. Hashem, I, I met a few tzaddikim in my life. I met a few tzaddikim in my life. Not all of them are the same. Some people are, you know, somewhere in the middle, this, that. But when you talk to somebody that's like, like a different world, literally, you know you're in a different world. Why? Because the thought of not understanding the basic, I don't know, the, 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 the biology of a person, it's so far from us. And how we were brought up today, I don't know, kids that are six years old know these questions. 
but they've sanctified themselves to such an extent that they only allowed the things that are relevant to their servitude of Hashem at that time to enter it. I didn't need to know where babies come from until I was married. So what purpose is there to learn it? I didn't need to know all the different details of the female body. So what purpose is there to look that way? I didn't need to know all of these things that are standard in society today. I didn't need to know all of those things. So I was not interested. So when a person sanctifies themselves to such a capacity, it's very easy for them to look at a verse in the Torah where it says that Avraham Avinu says, you have to put your hand on my breet and swear and understand clearly, yes, he's making a vow. This is perfectly normal. He's holding to a mitzvah. But when you are, you know, dirtied by society that you put yourself into and the choices you've made and the choices that sometimes were made for you, sometimes the latter more than the, 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 the first one, either way, a person doesn't see things in such a pure form unless they start working on themselves really hard and starts cleaning out all of the filth, the spiritual filth that is covering their eyes and their neshama altogether. So when people are looking for new inventions to use the tools that God gave them, to serve themselves and serve their lusts, of course they're not going to connect to holy intimacy, holiness during intimacy, servitude of Hashem while intimate. They have no connection to that because they believe they're in this world to serve themselves and sometimes do something for God so He doesn't kill you. So He gives you more money. So He does whatever you want. And in essence, turning the man into the master. And Shalom, the creator into the servant. So as much as this is a series about sanctifying ourselves during the act, we've already seen that what the Ramban is trying to work on is prepare us for that day more than anything else because if we haven't sanctified ourselves at least a little bit, to start thinking straight, or at least know what thinking straight looks and sounds like, there's no concept that we would understand during the latter times, during the shulim that are coming. So a person has to understand that if they're going to serve Hashem, they're going to have to look at their body differently. And the Ramban says, in other words, by creation, by the creation, there is nothing in all of man's organs that is flawed or ugly. This, be, uh, this being that since everything was created with divine wisdom and is perfect, as I said, the divine wisdom meaning Bereshit, exalted, good, and pleasant. But when man sins, he brings disgraceful ugliness to these things which were not originally repulsive or abhorrent. Understand this well, he says. A person has to understand that everything that Hashem gave you was given to you in as perfect condition as it could possibly be under the circumstances. What does that mean? 
Originally, before the sin, everything was given in the ultimate perfection of, 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 of any possibility. Adam Rishon was both physically and spiritually perfect. He had the capacity that's beyond our comprehension to serve Hashem with every part of his being. The moment that he steered away from serving Hashem with every part of his being and rather serve himself, even for that moment, even for a single act, that in itself opened up a can of worms of possibilities where things now had a different status, a taint, a scratch, a dirt on it, that this was not only used as instructed to serve Hashem. It was used also to serve men. So yes, you can go back to serving Hashem perfectly and and, and forever and so on, but you can't just remove that scratch and just say, oh, no, no, I, I didn't mean to, and that's it, I'm going, it's, 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 it takes a little bit more than that. Needless to say, if you continue doing more things, or your children do more things to start serving themselves, so much so that serving themselves becomes the priority over serving their creator. And a person that understands the purpose of life would want to know what can they do with each part of their body now the holy torah tells us that we have 248 limbs and 365 tendons versus the 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments if you add them all up you have the 613 now this is not a simple coincidence this is part of the holy teachings of the torah and the chachamim discussed it in many many different ways whether it be in kabbalah or different teachings in musal one of the chachamim that lived during a time of some of the greatest minds that ever existed during the times of Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Arizal, the Orchaim, was one of the Gdolim during that time, Rabbi Lazar Askari, Allah Shalom. He wrote a Sefer Musar called Sefer Acharidim. And he separates the mitzvot that we have based on the limbs meaning that he takes each limb 248 of them and he tells you all of the different mitzvot that are relevant to that limb now when it comes to the male member he says there are 15 mitzvot connected to the male member and each one is connected to a different verse in the Torah. The first mitzvah is the brit milah that a father has to do on his son. This is from Leviticus chapter 12, verse 13. If the father does not want to do a brit milah, then the second time that there's a mitzvah in Bereshit chapter 17, verse 10, is an obligation 
for the bedin to do the brit milah on the child if the bedin does not fulfill that role or it's not possible for them or they're not even aware of the person and a person grows up and he realizes he has no one has done brit milah the third mitzvah is that the person is obligated to do brit milah for himself certainly he doesn't have to actually cut himself but he has to go to a doctor to a moel and get a brit milah as soon as possible because every day that he's living without a brit milah is a very very big sin to say the least the fourth mitzvah is the brit that the rav has to do of his if he has servants fifth is the brit milah that the beddin has to do for people that want to convert to judaism the sixth mitzvah is the consummation of marriage by form of intimacy meaning that if the man and the woman go under the ketubah go under the the, the chuppah he says the blessings he gives her the ring he signs the uh it's all great but the marriage is not consummated until they can't they are physically intimate one time once they're physically intimate that's when the marriage is official this is why it is a complication that's never fun but certainly happens where the uh the woman is nida on the uh, day of marriage uh you know it's usually the uh one of the things that the uh the 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 responsibility of the rabbi is to to try to work with the bride and groom to make sure that the uh woman is not having her time of the month during the uh during the chuppah because they're supposed to consummate that marriage that night so much so that the uh the the groom is not uh obligated to say shema israel that night but uh sometimes it happens where the woman gets really nervous and she has a surprise and she has the uh she has her period uh, you know right before the uh the, the marriage right before the chupa day of and that means that you have a chupat nida what's chupat nida where they're able to the ketubah the chupah itself he says the blessings he gives her the ring without touching her actual finger but physically they can't consummate the marriage they can't consummate the marriage until she is pure again takes time and of course this delays the consummation of the marriage for another week or so so but either way the important part of it is to understand that that final consummation of the marriage is a, is is a mitzvah of that's done with the uh, uh, you know with intimacy next is the mitzvah of purbu which is to have children the Shukhan Aruch in uh even Ezel talks about Purbu, uh, how the uh, man is obligated to have at least one uh one son and one daughter the woman is not obligated to have children but needless to say the man needs her for it so she would be a uh, righteous wife that's a uh Ezel Kenegdo, that she's a help she's a helper of the husband to, to bring these to fulfill this mitzvah he can't fulfill it without her but Purbu is not just a simple mitzvah because if a person has a, uh, a son and a daughter and then stops having kids uh, and then uh, you know he um, uh, his kids one of his kids die uh, then he has to uh, have a has have someone to um, 
to replace them. Meaning that by the time he dies, he has to have at least one son and one daughter still alive. Now what happens if he uh, dies and uh, his son and daughter, one of them died? Well, he can't fulfill the mitzvah on his own anymore. And he's not going to have any more sons and daughters. But if his son and sons and daughters have kids, then he can fulfill the mitzvah of Purbu. Point being is, this mitzvah is a lot more built up and uh, uh, you know than than, necess- than, than than people understand. And when people settle for thinking that they, oh yeah, I have one daughter and I have one son, I'm finished with this mitzvah, uh, you're you're fooling yourself. Of course, this is also the reason why in previous generations it was a uh, praised upon for uh, for men to get married early. Uh, you know, the Shulchan Aruch says in Evan Ezer, in the beginning of the uh, of, of the um, Krach, it talks about how a person, a Jew, should get married at 18 years old. And the Gemara says that in previous generations, it was a way to get, it was a zgula to get uh, uh, all of the blessings and protection you want from heaven if you married off your son at 13 years old. Of course, today, it's a unacceptable for a kid to uh, that's 13 years old to get married. Uh, they would even call that pedophilia. The problem is, is that they allow kids to be promiscuous with girlfriends and boyfriends during that age. But yet if you told them that same kid wants to marry, they'll tell you, no, that's pedophilia, that's inappropriate, they're not ready. So they're ready to be uh, sexually active, but they're not ready to get married. A little odd, to say the least, and hypocritical. But needless to say, it's a very important mitzvah to get married as early as possible. And a person that understands that marriage and having children is part of their servitude of Hashem, looks at marriage and intimacy as something different than the way society looks at it. If you simply look at it the way society looks at it, you're either never going to get married or you'll get married way too many times. Either way, hot, happy marriage is far, far away from you. Far, far away from you. Why? Because society looks at marriage as as, as something completely the opposite of the way that it's supposed to be. So the uh, Sefer Charidim talks about how having children is certainly one of the mitzvot and purposes of marriage but it's certainly not the only purpose uh where there's actually a mitzvah the next mitzvah mitzvah number eight mitzvah ona'a mitzvah ona'a is actually for a man to give pleasure to his wife this is one of the three things that a man signs on the ketubah when he signs a ketubah to acquire his wife to marry his wife he is obligating himself to provide for her financially to provide her uh, uh, food and sheltering and clothing, and also to provide her intimacy whenever she wants. So the mitzvah obligation of that is on him. Is on him, it's not on her. So it's critical for a person to know that this is also an obligation during pregnancy, meaning that he can't just be with her whenever he feels like it and when she looks like she's 18 years old and uh, never uh, never uh, pregnant. He also has to be with her when she when she wants to be with him, even during pregnancy. There's a special importance for that. That's why the mitzvah of onah. He also, he also has to be with her when she's no longer able to have children anymore, whether it's because of age or otherwise. Point is, this is mitzvah number eight. Mitzvah number nine is separating from his wife. Separating from his wife when she has her period or when it's uh, days that she could potentially get her period. Number 10 is separating from his wife in a specific fashion if he found out that she has a period while they actually had an intimate act meaning 
They were in the middle of intimacy, in a positive way, in a holy way. Everything was going great. But to, to both of their surprise, she had a period during the intimate act. One of the obligations at that point is that they have to stop. They can't continue. So he has to remove himself from there in a specific fashion. And the mitzvah is to let his member die, meaning that he has to, has to soften before he removes. Why? Because if he removes it in its form that it was before, then he would actually enjoy the, uh, the, the nida, which is forbidden. Again, this is a mitzvah a person would never learn, would never know by simply reading verses in a Torah or by simply uh, uh, waiting for somebody to tell them in their, uh, on their Shulchan Shabbat. If you don't learn, you're never going to know. So the Sefer Charidim tells us this is also one of the mitzvot of the uh, uh, person. This is, by the way, Gemara Masechet Shvot, page 18a, is the source uh, for that. Also, he asked the mitzvah of giving his wife a get, leaving her and no longer being allowed to be with her. It, once he gives her a get, he's not allowed to be with her anymore. Number uh, 12, mitzvah of Yibum. Although this is no longer practiced by the majority of Jews in the world today, the mitzvah of Yibum is a biblical mitzvah that we find in uh, the parashah next week, uh, where uh, the, uh, if a uh, man marries a wife, but the man dies before the, uh, they have any children, it's a mitzvah for his brother to marry his uh, wife and have children. Where the Chachamim in the uh, world of Kabbalah say that they would actually, his neshama would reincarnate through the children. But the point being, there's a special mitzvah of doing that. If she, uh, if they don't want, then they would do something called chalitza. But this again is one of the mitzvot that's connected to the intimacy of a man. There's a also the uh, the mitzvah, the thirteenth mitzvah, which is the reason why we've read the first twelve, really which is kdoshim to you, to be holy. And the Sefer Charedim says, what does it mean to be holy? To be holy, we learn from the holy Ramban, Nachmanides, the very same one that we're learning is Sefer right now. Where to be holy is not only to be holy based on the things that are forbidden to you, meaning that you stay away from whatever is forbidden to you, a woman that's nida, a woman that's married to a different man, a sibling, a parent, a, a mother-in-law, a mother's mother-in-law, and so on. There is a quite a few prohibitions, but that's not going to attain you holiness, says the Ramban. You want to attain Kedusha, holiness, you also have to manage your consumption of the things that are permitted to you, meaning that even though it's kosher food and you're allowed to eat it, it doesn't mean you should. Even though she's your wife and you're allowed to be with her, it doesn't mean that you need to be with her like a, like a chicken. Even though there is plenty of things that are allowed, it doesn't mean that you should do all of them. So to sanctify yourself is to manage your, consummation, your, your consumption and your joy from what is permitted to you. That's how a person elevates their neshama. Now, Another one is the, uh, the the next few mitzvot have to do with the uh, uh, the, the the kohen. He's not allowed to marry the uh, divorcee. He's not allowed to marry a uh, um, even if it's own former uh, ex-wife. He's not allowed to marry a zona. A zona is a woman that was already 
uh, with another person uh, outside of uh, marriage. Uh, she was with a non-Jew one time. She's considered a zona. This is why you'll see in this week's parasha that uh, the brothers, uh, you know, Shimon and Levi, uh, say, uh, you know, that uh, this uh, Shechem that raped their sister Dina, it says, uh, she's going to be like a zona, like a harlot, because that's what happened when a Jewish woman is intimate with a non-Jew. She is considered halachically like a zona, like a harlot. Uh, so, of course, she needs to do tshuva. Of course, this is something that is not a favorable thing, but nonetheless, it doesn't mean that she needs to continue living that life just because she made a mistake. Uh, needless to say, these are different things that the Torah itself, the Torah itself brings light on, sheds light on. And it affects the sanctity that a person is uh, has at that moment. Now, where they are, male or female, doesn't necessarily mean they have to stay there. Even if they're the biggest sinner on planet Earth, it doesn't mean they have to stay there. Even if they're the holiest person on planet Earth, it doesn't mean they will stay there unless they continue serving Hashem. So the key is to understand that if you look at your body as another tool to serve the Creator, in fact, many tools to serve your Creator, then you will be able to sanctify yourself even during your acts of intimacy, even during acts of eating and drinking, uh, during every aspect of your life, during every step of your life. But if a person looks at their body the way that the Satan wants them to look at their body, as simply a, uh, a way to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, consume pleasure, then of course this person is going to be as far removed from holiness as uh, some people out there where they hear, you know, holiness during intimacy and they like literally they have like an allergic attack. Why? To them it's purely an animalistic act. Nothing more, nothing less. Sad but true. This is what people think. So the uh, person that wants to attain holiness has to start you know using their body for more than just physical pleasure now to get to where we want to be is not going to happen if we simply paint a picture of where we want to be meaning if let's say for example a person wants to have some level of holiness during every act of intimacy if we simply paint that as the picture, okay, just be holy and uh, good luck to you, that's usually not going to work. Why? Because generally speaking, people do not attain their goals. They usually attain part of their goals. In the business world, I remember I used to tell my employees, the amount of money that you will make in this business and in life in general has a lot to do with your perspective or money what you view as a lot of money. If you view a million dollars as a lot of money, your full potential is probably around four hundred to $500,000. You're not going to reach a million dollars. If you view $10 million as a lot of money, then you have the potential to make several million dollars. If you view $100 million as a lot of money, then you can make that kind of money, $40, 50000000 million. Now, of course... 
people are going to say, wait a minute, every one of you is that $100 million is a lot of money. You're right. But what I mean is that if you view $100 million as a lot of money, yet $10 million, it's not a lot of money, then you have the potential of reaching that higher level. But if you think all of those numbers are a lot, then, then, then the perspective that you have is the lower number. Either way, the way people generally are is that they have certain goals and aspirations, but usually they lose steam once they are close to halfway there. This is the reason why it's very important for a person to learn as much as they possibly can about the ways of the tzaddikim, the ways of the righteous, and how they behaved, and how they were, and what they did, even though most of the time what they did is far, far removed from where you are and sometimes even where you could be. But certainly it's valuable to know that in order to, number one, appreciate the tzaddikim and understand what the tzaddikim were, Two, also understand what is possible. What is possible if there's enough desire, enough willpower, and of course, siyate dishmaya, the, the uh, divine assistance. One of the sfarim that teaches a person how to be holy, that comes from chasidut, is by Rabbi Elimelech Milizhinsk. Rabbi Elimelech Milizhinsk was third generation after the Baal Shem Tov. So this is preceding much of what people know as Hasidut today. You have the Baal Shem Tov, you have the Magid Mimezrich, and then you have Rabbi Eliyelech Milizhinsk, and his brother, Rabbi Zusha. So this is a little over 200 years ago, almost 250 years ago. Rabbi Eliyelech Milizhinsk was one of the Kedoshe Elyon, one of the holies, holy of holies that we had in the world. And he wrote a small sefer, like a, almost like a letter. What he calls it is a sefer, uh, tzitzil katan, small tzitzil. And the purpose of the sefer is to teach a person how to become kadosh, how to become holy. And he says the following, to become holy, it's three steps, three different things. A, first step. These are three different levels of Kedusha. Starting with the lowest one, going up to the highest one. At any time that a person is free, meaning he's not in the middle of learning Torah, he's not able to learn Torah, he's too tired, he, uh, but he's sitting over there on his bed, not doing anything. He's there's not going to sleep or can't go to sleep, but nonetheless, he's there and he's not learning Torah. He can't just sit there and do nothing. So what should he do? He wants to attain Kedusha, wants to attain holiness. If a person wants to do this, certainly he needs to do this when he is busy learning Torah, praying, and so on and so forth, but this is during the free time. What should he be doing if he wants to attain Kedusha? At all times that he's free, he should take uh, uh, take about, think about the obligation of being holy. As the Torah tells us, you have an obligation to attain holiness. How? By imagining that there is a bunch of idolaters 
that are trying to make him go against God either by bowing to an idol, serving some type of idolatry, murdering somebody, or making a sexual crime. Act of immorality, either incest, rape, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Three cardinal sins. You should imagine that they're telling him that if he doesn't serve this idol, they're going to throw him into the fire. And he has to view this fire as an enormous fire that reaches the heavens. A huge fire that would burn him and consume him. And he is fighting for the sake of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying Hashem's name and telling them under no condition, will I serve this idol? Will I make this sex crime? Will I do any of these things? And he jumps into the fire! Like Avraham Avinu. This is what he should think when he's not doing anything. To show Hashem, I want to be holy. Step number two. You want to be even holier than that. Holier than that. Now, of course, I already know. Everybody's talking, watching this saying this is insanity. I get it. Insanity to some, a dream for others. Needless to say, level number two. Think everything we just said in the first level during the times that you read the first verse of the Shema Yisrael and the first blessing during Tefillat Shemona Yisrael, the Amidah. Think of that. Think of these idolaters telling you they're going to throw you into a fire if you don't bow to their idol, you don't serve their Yoshke. They're going to throw you into a fire. And you're not waiting for it. You're jumping into the fire. Never going to serve an idol. Never going to become a Christian. Never going to become an idol worshiper. Not happening. But they're not letting you now jump into the fire. But this time, Rabbi Eliel, Melech Melechim said, no, 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 they catch you. And they start peeling your skin. And they say, go serve the idol. We're going to peel your entire body. And you are thinking vividly the experience and the agony that you're dealing with because you're not going to serve an idol. That's level number two. Level number three. All of what we just thought at level one and two with the agony and pain of being tortured, the worst possible torture by one nation after another is torturing your Jewish body and you are supposed to think this during the times that you eat and during the times of intimacy. Says Rabbi Yilmeyedek Think this and think Akadosh Baruch I am much more, I'm enjoying the thought of fulfilling the mitzvah of sanctifying your name, that I'm sanctifying your name in my mind right now, that I'm going through this death in my mind, much more than the stake, much more than this intimate act, 
Of course, you don't tell this to your wife. This is all in your mind. Because if you tell this to your wife, you're probably not going to have a wife. But the point being is, this Rabotai was what Hasidut, was what our holy sages taught, learned, lived. And Rabbi Ali Melech is just from a couple of hundred years ago. The Ramban that we're learning from this entire Sefer is a Rishon. He's from 750 years ago. Needless to say, even higher level of holiness, higher level of sanctity. So, to reach that level of holiness, certainly it's far, far away from us. But like I said multiple times, in order for us to accept the small things that is within our power, our attitude towards how we use our body, how we use our eyes, what we listen to, what we speak, when to be intimate, with who, with when, and so on, the things that are within our control, the things that really distinguish us from simply being animals. It's much easier to take those on and increase our level of sanctity once we know that, hey, the highest level of sanctity is far, far higher than this. So at the very least, do what you're doing. Do what you can. Do what you can. Why? You're going to need this extra. You're going to need this extra sanctity. Because there's going to come a time you're going to need some extra merits for Hashem to help you. At some point during your life, whether in this world or during your judgment, you're going to need those extra merits. And those extra merits are what can literally change the judgment from one end to the complete other. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 4, verse number 4, says to us, in the name of God, when my Lord will have washed the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinsed the blood of Jerusalem from our midst, with a spirit of judgment and a spirit of purging. The prophet says that the Jewish people sinned. They took on all types of things that were forbidden, idolatry, adultery, immorality of all kinds, and they dirtied their souls and soiled them with spiritual filth that is no different than the filth that you would find on a baby. Yet Hashem is willing to clean them. And what is it like? Imagine a baby, a cute little baby, sitting there in his crib, still having a tough time, standing on two legs, Walking a few steps, no more than that. Cute little chubby thighs. So funny to look at him in a diaper, a tiny little shirt. Cute puffy cheeks. Looks like a present from heaven. 
couple of teeth coming out, small little ears, little dot nose, opens his eyes and it's like light comes into the room. But this baby is as cute as can be. When the mommy dresses him to get ready for Shabbat, to get ready for guests, sometimes she'll put a little suit on him, a little bow tie, little pants for the little kid. It's as cute as can be. It's mama, she want to eat him. But one day, that baby is going to wake up in the middle of the night. And uh, she's going to cry. And his ima is going to be tired. She worked all day, cooking, cleaning, helping the husband in all types of ways. She's exhausted. And she's so tired that either she can't hear him cry or she's so deep in her sleep, so tired she can't get herself up. Kid cries for a little bit because he dirtied his diaper. And he dirtied it in an interesting fashion. And it burns him. It's uncomfortable. He doesn't like it. Cries for a moment. Scratches himself. And then to his fortune, diaper comes out. Comes off. He stops crying. So his mom has no idea what just happened. She's... Here's the good news. The baby stopped crying. She is back to sleep. She doesn't even get up. And he is happy as he can be. Why? Diaper's off. Diaper's off. Little package is right next to him. He doesn't really feel like going to sleep. Something's interesting. Looks in the diaper. What's that? Takes it. Oh. Sees a new color on his hands. Puts it here, puts it there, puts it everywhere. By the time his mom wakes up, because usually when they're really little, their uh, their waist doesn't smell so bad. Sometimes it doesn't smell at all. Depends how young. So when she wakes up to the surprise with the little poopy baby in a package, she has no idea how, who, what, when. And to her fortune, the other kids come into the room. The husband comes into the room. Everybody comes into the room. They want to see the baby. Everybody's in the baby. They run into the room, come into the baby. Everybody's like, oh, baby, baby, baby. Oh, like everything stops slow motion. The five-year-old, the eight-year-old, the 12-year-old, the father, the uncle, the, the aunt, the cousin, the great, everybody stopped. What the hell just happened here? And the mom is so tired and she does no idea how to explain to them. She just smiles. And everybody's like, okay, baby. Good seeing you. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to touch this baby. Nobody wants to touch the baby. Nobody wants to pick him up. Nobody wants to kiss him. Nobody wants nothing except his ima. It is Ima that loves him endlessly. Takes the baby that's full of poopy. She takes the baby that has here and there and there and there and there and there and there and there. And you have no idea. It's like literally a miracle of miracles. How did you get this little thing everywhere on planet Earth? It's like when kids eat chocolate. 
little piece of chocolate, somehow it gets on their entire body. Like if you took that chocolate and you melted it intentionally, maximum it'll maybe make a little dent on your finger. But when the kid holds that piece of chocolate, somehow it goes on their entire body, their feet, their ears, their head, their hair, everything. That comes, it's a miracle of miracles. This kid, this baby, just did a number on his mom. He just made sure it's not chocolate, but it looks like chocolate. And she is the only one that is as happy as can be to come clean the baby. Father, ran away. Brother, sister, gone. Grandmother, listen, I had my kids. It's your turn now. The uncle, the cousin, everybody that wants to see the baby. See you later, baby. But the Ima, she takes that baby, that little dirty baby. And she washes him and cleans him. And then she fixes his hair. And then she puts the little jacket on him and a little shirt on him and a little diaper on him and everything. And he looks like a little brand new package just came out of heaven. And that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us in this verse in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 4. My people, they dirtied themselves full of filth. What filth? Each time that you make a sin, each time you waste seed, each time you commit adultery, each time you look at something forbidden, you eat something forbidden, each time you forget to make a blessing, each time you do something against the Torah, you are putting spiritual filth on yourself. Spiritual filth that's much worse than the fecal manner on that baby. Spiritually speaking, nobody wants to talk to you. The angels run away. The friends, the family, the, everybody wants to run away. Why? The more spiritually filthy a person is, the more the world is repulsed by him. Only sinners and people that are also full of filth are looking to be attracted to that person. But then comes Akadosh Baruch Hu and says, if you want to come, I'll clean you. But you have to come. You have to try and that's why the Gemara Masechet Yoma, page 39, says, Someone that comes to be purified, Hashem will give him a helping hand. But you have to come. You have to try. Hashem says, I'm happy for you to read this verse. Instead of saying, Im Instead of reading it, when my Lord will have washed the filth, im, you can read it with different vowel, m, like ima. Hashem is like your ima, is happy to wash away all the filth. Just come. Just come. Try. Try to do tshuva. Try to follow the way of God. Try to sanctify yourself with the things you can do. Certainly, there are things that you're hearing that are as far removed from you as possible, according to your logic today. And no one is telling you that you need to do the things that are far from you today. But there are certainly things that you can do. And that's the purpose of this series. That each week, we try to sanctify ourselves just a little bit more. And when you do a little bit more, 
Each week, by the time we complete the entire series, those little bits will turn into a lot. And perhaps we'll be able to fulfill the mitzvah of Kedoshim Tiyu Ki Kedoshani. You be holy because I am holy, says Hashem. Bezat Hashem. This too will give us the chizuk, the necessary tools, the strength, willpower, knowledge and desire to sanctify ourselves a little bit more until the next lecture where we learn again the holiness of attaining holiness during intimacy. Thank you again for learning with me. Shem bless each and every single one of you. And Bezot Hashem will learn again soon. There are no shortcuts, no tricks, no magic. The very cave you fear possesses the cure you seek. Go within. Just now, once you cross that threshold, there is only one way. There was a rich family that lived here called the Hetheringtons, and unfortunately, their daughter passed away of a heart attack inside the house. Basically, they were so devastated that they reached out to people claiming to be psychic mediums. They actually weren't psychic mediums. They opened up a total of 11 portals inside this house and invited spirits and entities from all different kinds of dimensions. Well, I think there are certain pieces of evidence that there is an afterlife. Resurrection of the dead is affirmed uh, pretty clearly uh, in the Talmud and the Midrash. To be honest with you, to give this lecture is a nightmare. If it was up to me, I wouldn't. There's going to be some graphic details. This place is a maze. The person after death went to a place called Sheol. This is by far the largest near-death experience study that has ever been conducted. People go to a place and they experience weird things. And sometimes they actually will see a character of some type. Well, where did that come from? describe feeling profoundly peaceful, seeing a bright, warm, welcoming light. Some people describe watching doctors and nurses working on them with incredible accuracy. Next thing I knew, I was above my body watching the operation. How long did you feel like you were gone? I went to a place of timelessness. And so what that means, it could have been a second, it could have been five minutes. I don't know. Can you imagine waking up from your sleep and not being able to move? As I'm lying there, I realize that there's a, an evil presence next to me. Do you believe that angels, demons exist? Holy shit, get out of here! Oh my god, dude! Strange things keep happening. Bizarre nightmares, as if I'm on fire. Whoa, what the hell is this? Man, I've got bad chest pain. Satan's Hollow is what it's called, the portal to hell. Some people calling it an eye of fire, while others said it looked like the portal to hell opening up.
next thing I know, I was outside of my body, looking at my body. What I'm going to do is called claromancy, the art of throwing lots or throwing bones. 2,000 years of experience, passed down, recorded, of how demons work. God has them all on a leash, and he lets the leash go enough to let them tempt us, because that's what makes us spiritually stronger. I'm trying to be as graphic as possible so you understand what we're talking about. It's your ticket to reality. It's your ticket to freedom. It's your ticket to immortality. Is there an afterlife? Is there a it's God? It's the type of information that can keep you away from the itself. What happens to us after we die?